0: I want to begin by thanking you all. I'm not sure why I thank you, but I don't know who else to thank for the moderate winter weather so far. Does anybody know where I can get some sunblocker for later this week? I hear we're going to hit 40. Oh, my word. Yeah, and I've been been told that that's unusual. Uh, I've been told don't expect that, and that if this continues, then Rick and Lucy have not really experienced a Minnesota winter yet, and so we're, we're still bracing ourselves, so, but we're grateful. I think you're probably grateful too. By the way, just something personally, um, I would really appreciate your prayers. Some of you know, some of you may not know that um, Lucy's mom is uh, slipping towards home pretty quickly. Uh, she's already left and gone down to Chattanooga where her mom lives, and I'll be leaving after service today. Uh, to go down and join her for a few days. Um, Lucy's brother called us midweek, this last week, and basically said that if you want to have some conversation and engagement um, with her, that you need to come now. So we're going to be going down and having some of those final conversations. So I'm going to appreciate your prayers. Not sure how to have those kind of final conversations. And Lucy's mom, as she heads home towards heaven, this is the last of our parents, so that's a real kind of stage shifting. I know so many of you understand this. You've been there, you understand it. But so Lucy and I would just appreciate your prayers, traveling, um, but also just time with, with her mom as well. So just a little personal note there that I would appreciate you all being aware of. Well, last Sunday, we started a series on how to make the transition from 2020 to 2021. And I know most of us would agree that last year was crummy on so many levels. So even though as we breathe a sigh of relief, as we see 2020 in the rearview mirror, at the same time, we need to recognize that we face a risk. The danger is that believing that just because the calendar has changed, that that means our circumstances have changed or will change. You see, I'm utterly convinced, utterly convinced that our experience of 2021 is going to be more determined by our mindset. Now, what is a mindset? A mindset is composed of those established attitudes and opinions and expectations that we tenaciously hold on to. So a mindset is, very, is incredibly powerful for us because it becomes the lenses the glasses through which we view all of life. Now, for the followers of Jesus, our mindset, if it's biblical, should help us live with a hope that then releases us and empowers us to have joy and a peace and a compelling sense of purpose for every single one of our days. And To start down this road of of discovering what kind of a mindset should we have in 2021, I felt like we needed to have a fresh start. So last Sunday, the first Sunday of the new year, we did just that. And by the way, if you have not seen it or were not here, let me encourage you while it's still up on our website to go back and not just watch a week ago Sunday's service, but also to engage in it because it asks you to be a participant, because having a fresh start is vital then to having the right mindset for this coming year, because sometimes you've got to clear away the debris before you can build. So where are we going next after a fresh start? Well, starting today and going for the next three Sundays, we're going to be examining the three critical components for a biblical mindset that will make an enormous difference as we journey through 2021. So this morning, I'd like for us to consider the first mindset. And to do that, I'd like to ask a couple of questions. For example, for example, the first, not example, but the first question I have is, why are you here? Now, I don't mean that in an existential way, but I mean physically right here in this place. In other words, why do you devote a significant amount of your time on Sunday mornings to gathering with other people in this very room? I mean, after all, have you heard what Bill Gates, the uh, founder of Microsoft, has said? He said, in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. So, why are you here? And here's my second question. that, regardless of how you answered the first one, what would make this time better? Would you have a better Sunday morning experience here at Lakewood if the lighting was better? If the song selection was more to your liking? If you alone had control over the thermostat for the temperature in this room, if the volume, you could make it louder or you could make it softer. Now, is there a common denominator between those two questions I asked? Why are you here and what would make this time better? Well, absolutely, there is a common denominator, and it's the idea of expectation. You see, each one of us walks into this room every single Sunday morning with expectations about this weekly corporate gathering. And we usually then walk out of here and evaluate the service based on whether or not those expectations were met. So how do we answer questions like, why am I here and what would make this time better? Well, if you have your Bibles, open them, if you would, to Psalm 95, bring them up on the device you have, because this psalm speaks to the expectations that we are to have about corporate worship. Now, we could literally have a 20 or 30 week series on worship and all that it means and and how it's a 24-7 focus, but Psalm 95 just narrowly addresses when believers gather in corporate worship. So that's all we're going to be looking at this morning. And the psalmist, and more than likely it was David, but it may not be, is going to surprise us by pointing out why we are called to be here and also caution us about how we come. So I want you to be very aware of what's going to unfold here in Psalm 95. For worship is not something that happens to me, but rather it is something that comes up out of me. So notice in the first part of this psalm how we are called to respond to the Lord from our hearts. Look at the text. Look how verse 1 begins. O come, Now drop down to verse 6. How does it begin? O come. So I am invited to come and give my God worship in two powerful ways. The first heart response is seen in verse 1 and verse 2. Look at them. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Notice there, we are called to come and worship the Lord with unashamed celebration. Biblical worship asks us to engage as enthusiastic participants. Again, look at the words that the psalmist uses. Sing, make a joyful noise. Come with thanksgiving. Come with songs of praise. In other words, David or whoever wrote this is identifying that our Lord wants to see out of us unashamed enthusiasm when we worship. And that's why throughout the history of the church, music has played such a crucial role in corporate worship. I mean, by the way, did you know that um, endorphins are released? inside of us, which helps to then create positive feelings inside of us when we sing. And this is especially true when we are singing with other people around us. Group singing also produces the production of oxytocins. That's a bonding hormone inside of us. That reduces stress, it reduces anxiety, but it also increases feelings of trust and well-being. So it's no surprise that when we sing and sing in a corporate situation, some incredibly powerful things are happening literally inside of our bodies. The psalmist wants us to approach worship as an engaged, celebrating participant. That means we are the performers. And God in heaven is the audience. That also means that what happens up here is not really what matters. It's what happens out there that matters. So let me ask, what does unashamed enthusiasm look like for you? It may not look like it for somebody else, but how about just for you? Well, let me ask, what does unashamed enthusiasm just look like for you generally? Generally. Not necessarily in worship, but just generally. I mean, I have, for example, seen some people show some rather excited enthusiasm at a sporting event, or maybe they were watching their favorite sport on TV when literally they jumped off of the sofa, started dancing around in a circle, shouting at the top of their lungs, and giving tens to everybody that was in the room because their team scored some critical points at an important part of the game. And yet, the very next Sunday, in worship, that same person sat in their Sunday morning with their arms folded like a statue, and the look on their face was, I dare you to get through to me. Okay, that's too convicting. We need to move on. So, but what is unashamed enthusiasm for you? And again, it doesn't have to be that which is happening down the row from you or in front of you at all. Because I'm not talking about drawing attention to yourself. That's not what I'm saying. We sing here. Folks, sing. David says, make a joyful noise. By the way, I've sat near some of you, and some of you, that's what you're doing. It's noise. It's not harmonious at all or melodic. That's okay. I don't care. Is it joyful? Is it what you're giving to the Lord? Folks, if you're going to clap the beat of a song or clap because you're excited about something that has happened, clap like you mean it. Now, for some of you, your enthusiasm, I realize I've got a Scandinavian background audience here. For some of you, your enthusiasm is going to be tapping your foot to the music. That's fine if that's enthusiastic worship for you. The key here is don't take your cues from anybody else. And don't worry what others might think of you either. God doesn't want you to mimic others. He wants you to authentically celebrate him. He's the one who is receiving what's coming up and out of you. Now, do you see how that's a challenge to our mindset, though? How often we, how often do I, Come on Sunday morning with a consumer mentality. We want our needs met. And so we evaluate the morning based on what we got out of it. And yet what the a psalmist is showing us here in just these opening verses. He wants our corporate worship to be a form of crowdsourcing. Do you all understand Crowdsourcing where someone has a need that's so big that they can't fulfill it, and so on the internet or in other communication channels, they ask for others to contribute just a little something, and then the contribution of the whole fulfills the need in in an absolutely wonderful way. It's called crowdsourcing, and that's what should happen here. Every single one of us giving what little we can in our enthusiastic celebration of God, and then the whole becomes this wonderful thing that is offered up to the Lord. But, but what about those Sundays when I don't feel like giving? What about those Sundays when I don't feel like celebrating? What do I do when I come in here and I have had a week where I have felt beaten down, where I'm discouraged, where I'm frustrated? I walk in here angry. I walk in here worried. How can I come and celebrate sincerely when my life stinks? Look at the first word of verse three. Four. The psalmist now talks about why and how can I be motivated to give an unashamed celebration to the God of heaven even if things are not going well, well, for what? For it's based on who God is and what He has done. Look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain are His also. The sea is His, for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. See, so often we Allow our worship to be determined by our immediate circumstances, our immediate surroundings. Do I like the songs? Is the volume okay? Is it too warm in here? Have we been standing way too long for all these songs? Please let me sit down. The list of consumer possibilities is a long and odious thing. But the psalmist indicates that our worship is ignited, first of all, in verse 3, by God's position. He's a great God. He's the great king. So I can celebrate regardless of my circumstances because my God is still on the throne. That never changes, regardless of the way I'm feeling at the moment. He has got the highest place of authority. And my worship honors him in that, regardless of how I feel, even if on a Sunday morning I have to say, Lord, I have to do this by faith because it sure doesn't seem real at the moment. So I can't unashamedly worship, even when, because things in my life seem out of control, my God is not rattled by it. He isn't in heaven thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't think that would happen. In the midst of my hurt, in the midst of my pain, I may not be able to explain Him, but I can still exalt Him as my great King and my great God, and I can thank Him again, even if it's by faith. You have got it under your control. But look at verse 5 because there's a second way in which worship is ignited. And that is my worship can catch fire when I focus on God's power. That's verse 4 and verse 5. He made it all. My God's got this unlimited power base. He created it, and it's all in His hands. It may not be in my hands. In fact, it never really is in my hands, but it's in His. By the way, hold your finger here in Psalm 95, but turn, if you would, back to Colossians chapter 1. Look at how Paul picks up on the same idea and how it is a motivation. For our worship. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now watch this last phrase. That in everything he might be preeminent. Why do I exalt my God? He not only designed it all, he created it all. And by His power, He holds it all together. So when I'm struggling because of other people, when I'm struggling because of my circumstances, and I'm tempted to approach corporate worship on any given Sunday as a consumer, I am encouraged by Psalm 95 to look up. And by faith, if I've got to exalt my God, who is in the highest position possible and has unlimited power. And that's why in these first five verses, we're called to respond to God from hearts in unashamed celebration. But Remember, I mentioned verse 1, verse 6, so there is a second invitation, which also is to characterize my worship. Again, verse 6 repeats, oh, come. So I'm also to worship the Lord with humble submission. Well, there's a word for us as Americans to choke on, submit. Submit. Okay. Well, look at verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. When we worship, we come to yield. We come to surrender. We come to relinquish our lives. And by the way, do you notice the distinct change of tone in the psalm right here? Verse 1 through verse 5 is kind of upbeat and lively. Now you come to to verse 6, and it's kind of quiet. It calms down and has a real touch of humility. Again, notice those words, bow down, kneel before. So the physical position that the psalmist is acknowledging reveals a yielding of our lives to Him. And why would I do that? Well, what did we just see in verses 3 to 4? Well, He's the great God. He is the great King. He's got all authority. So partially I'm doing it, I'm submitting to that. But watch the sequence here. Our unashamed celebration is based on who God is and His mighty works. But our submission, verse 7, is based on who we are. Notice how verse 7 begins with the word for. Why do I give submission? Why do I yield? Why at times do literally I get down on my knees before my God? Because we are his sheep and we're in his pasture. Wow, that's humbling. I don't know what view you have of yourself. Maybe you think you're a roaring lion maybe you think you are this magnificently strong stallion that runs the bible reminds us over and over again we're sheep pretty humbling and is his one of his sheep we are in his pasture in other words each one of us is right where he wants us to be the location that you are in at this very moment in your life is exactly the pasture that God wants you to be in, which means your home, your job, your school, your family is the intended context within which God will work in you and through you. But isn't it easy? I find myself thinking this. It is so easy to wish I was someplace else. It's the proverbial, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But you, did you know that someone has said, you know why it's greener over there? It's because that's where the septic tank is leaking. And notice how the sheep theme continues there in verse 7. We're the sheep of his hand. It is the hand of the shepherd that cares for the sheep. Shepherds want their sheep to grow. Shepherds want their sheep to be healthy. And so it is the shepherd's hand which gives protection, which gives guidance to the flock. Oh, isn't that, isn't that wonderful then when we hear our Savior in John chapter 10 and verse 11 tell us, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so that's why submission is part of my worship because I recognize the loving, shepherding care of God in my life, and I am just simply one of His sheep, and I acknowledge that, and my submission acknowledges my utter and complete dependency on Him. So there you go. There There are the two key responses from the heart that I am to give in worship, a response of celebration, and a response of submission. But the psalm is not done. Notice how then the psalm takes a dramatic 90-degree turn. David, if that's who wrote it, is incredibly realistic. So he takes the time to warn us about a danger. From the the end of verse 7 all the way down to verse 11, we are now cautioned about resisting the Lord from the heart. The first part of the psalm was about responding to the Lord from the heart. Now he warns us about resisting the Lord from the heart. Again, think about this. If we are called to worship by Our hearts responding, in other words, something's coming up and out of me, then doesn't it make sense that what kills worship is the very same thing? That which doesn't come up and out of me. That's what we're being warned about. In other words, a caution flag is being a yellow one, is being waved right in front of our faces. Because when it comes to corporate worship, we are need to be aware of the choice we are making. Look at the end of verse 7. What is that word there? Today? That Hebrew word literally is talking about right now. At this very moment. So the warning that we are being given highlights a decision that we make at every given point, every given moment in our lives. Okay, what is that decision? What is that choice? Look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. Since worship is about my heart being engaged, then it's a hard heart that kills worship. For a hard heart is a resistant heart. It's not receptive, it's not tender, it's not open to the Lord. It doesn't respond back to the Lord willingly and openly. No, it resists. Interesting, the best description I've ever heard is that a hard heart is a heart that learns without understanding, looks without seeing, listens without hearing, and acts without impacting. So a hardened heart darkens our minds, blinds our eyes, deafens our ears, and paralyzes our hands. And you know what the scary thing is? The scary thing about a hard heart is you don't, have to be, you don't have to appear to others to be angry or depressed. You actually can come across as very happy and very pleasant, but down deep in your heart, you have determined, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And the prime example of all this is what Israel did with the Lord in the Exodus. Look, look how it's described for us here. Do not harden your hearts at Meribah as on the day of Massah, in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. This afternoon, if you want to take, take this down, go back and review Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. That's the story in detail, but let me just kind of give you a couple of broad brushstrokes about what's, what, what the psalmist is referring to here. He's talking about that time when the nation of Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, and they crossed through the Red Sea in a miraculous way as God divided the water, and they went through with the walls of the sea on either side of them. Then after that, they traveled down, put in your mind's eye a a map of the the Near East, they traveled down the western side of the Sinai Peninsula. That is an area of raw and rugged desert. But they weren't just wandering, they weren't just trying to figure it out. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 1 tells us that they traveled from place to place, as the Lord commanded. So they were being directed on where specifically to go. But now they're out in the desert. Water and food quickly became an issue for survival. Okay, now let's keep it in context. What encourages worship? Uh, Celebration and submission, good. And why do we celebrate? God's our powerful king. He can do anything. Why do we submit? Well, God's our shepherd, and we're dependent upon his care. So Israel was walking through the desert by the direction of God, their king. Now they need to learn to trust his shepherding care. But did they? Now, verse 9, they did not. Your father is put me to the test. And they put me to the proof. To test means that they questioned his care. Will you meet our needs, God? In other words, God's not being a good shepherd. To put to the proof means they were questioning his leading. Why did you bring us out here? In other words, I don't think, God, you're being such a great king. Are we ever like Israel? I know I can be so easily. When my circumstances get tough and I start to question his care, Lord, I don't think you're being such a good shepherd because this situation really hurts. Or I question his leadership in, in my life, Lord, I think you've taken me the wrong way. I, I, Things are not working out. Things are really tough right now. And by the way, God can handle our tough questions. I believe God can even handle our challenging questions. The issue is, what do those questions do to my heart? Do I allow those kinds of questions? And then I choose on the basis of those questions to allow my heart to become hardened to Him. See, is it any wonder that when our hearts struggle with these kinds of issues and they become hardened, that we walk into a worship service here at Lakewood and we find it to be less than satisfying? When we've chosen to harden our hearts to celebration, when we've chosen to harden our hearts to submission, And that's why the psalm ends about being cautioned about one other thing, not just about the choice we make or a choice that we're making constantly, but it also warns us about the consequences that a hard heart brings. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Here are the consequences for Israel. So for 40 years, verse 10, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways wow, a whole generation spent the next 40 years wandering in the desert. Now ask the question, why? And the psalmist says it's because they went astray in their what? Hearts. Do you see how the psalmist keeps coming back over and over again? Worship is a heart issue. And then they were never allowed to enter into the promised land. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, verse 11. The fulfillment of everything that God had designed for them when they were brought out of of Egypt was never realized. And my friends, that can happen to us. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here, but of experiencing The rest that God intends for those of us as followers of Jesus, we are intended to enjoy. See, if in our hearts we challenge God's place as our king and shepherd, when in anger we test him because we don't like what is happening around us, then what we end up doing is we spend so much of our time desperately seeking relief from other sources and we become determined that to make life happen, I've got to make it happen. Instead, of gaining the rest, which is the peace, which is the comfort, which is the assurance every day that Christ is in me. It never seemed to be a reality. That's why it is so powerful, the invitation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, when he says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Which means even today, when we are going through a desert-like experience, we can experience a restful peace in our hearts as we trust the hand of our God in our lives. Seems to me I'm going through a phase right now where I'm really enjoying the writings of Paul David Tripp, and I'm currently reading one of his books called "Awe." A-W-E. And in that introduction to the book, he says, I am aware that I need to spend more time gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I need to put my heart in a place where it can once again be in awe of the grandeur of God. I need awe of Him to recapture, refocus, and redirect my heart again and again. And I need to remember that the war for the awe of my heart still wages within me. Psalm 95 has just described the first mindset of 2021 that we need, but it's going to take a fight to get it and keep it. So here's the way I put it. What is this first mindset all about? This first mindset is, I will cultivate a mindset of giving in worship so that my daily focus is looking up and not down. Now, there's a corollary to this that I want to give you. That mindset is only possible when I give up coming to get and I get that I'm coming to give. For worship is not something that happens to me, but something that comes up and out of me. Specifically, from my heart, may our Sunday mornings together be a time when each of us gives to the Lord my unashamed celebration and then my humble. Submission. Let's pray. Father, from my own heart, and probably for many of us, it's probably appropriate <coughs> that the first thing that we pray is to ask for your forgiveness. Father, forgive us for how many Sundays we have come in here with a consumer mindset instead of a crowdsourcing mindset.